0: put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these on account of these the wrath of god is coming in these you too once walked when you were living in them but now you must put them all away anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk from your mouth And be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person.
1: Our Father in heaven, help us to grow in wisdom, to grow in gracious speech, to grow as your disciples for your glory. And we ask as we hear your word now that you'll help us to do all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. It was seven weeks ago that we started this new sermon series called Firm Foundations. Firm Foundations for the Christian Faith. And look at seven key areas of discipleship that every Christian should be growing in. Now today's passage comes from Colossians chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 as we consider our final topic, meeting the world. Now, in comparison to a lot of other letters from Paul in the New Testament, Colossae, Colossians, the church, uh, was generally doing okay. Uh, There were some issues, but the opening thanksgiving and prayer in chapter 1 is one of the longest and most encouraging. Now, the book of Colossians itself covers a lot of the same ground that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Hear hear Paul's words at the very beginning of the letter. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See, notice here in the opening verses how Paul gives thanks that they are saved, that they heard the gospel and they trusted it by faith. And it showed in their love for all the saints. And then in verse 4, there it was faith in Jesus, not their works, that saved them. Echoing what we heard uh, right at the start of this series. Jump down to chapter uh, 1, verses 9 to 10. And so, excuse me, and so from the day we heard, excuse me again, let me start again. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, having heard of their faith, Paul prayed that they would continue to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that they would grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding, for the purpose in verse 10 that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That their lives would reflect the goodness and holiness of God who loves and saves them. Uh, Same thing in chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. They're a very long encouragement to put to death their old sinful ways and put on new God-reflecting ways. Echoing again what Merv preached to us a few weeks ago, that if we are saved by faith and trusting in God, that necessarily leads to new life. Now jump down to 3.16. 3.16. Chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singings, psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Right, perfectly in step with Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3 that we heard about a few weeks ago as well, that it is the word of God that needs to dwell in us richly. Letting the word sink deep and penetrate into every part of our lives, letting it teach and admonish, one another, another word for correct and to rebuke in all wisdom. In terms of prayer, Paul has a very clear word in chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And again, perfectly in step with his words in Philippians and the words that Ben gave to us. Right? Paul calls on the church to pray and to be watchful in it. To pray with, a, with their metaphorical eyes open, looking for things to be thankful for. In terms of teaching us about the church, well, as a letter uh, written to the church, it is instructive for us all, and I did a quick scan and found out that all the "us" in this letter are in the plural, you all, right? So all the gospel truths and all the gospel actions and the applications are directed at the church, but as a specific example, have a look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, right? Uh, Chapter 2 verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay to see and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now the struggle here he he refers to uh, a verse earlier is the struggle to preach and to teach and to present everyone mature in the gospel. And he struggles for the church so that, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. You see the description of Christians there in verse 2. Their hearts encouraged and knit together in love. Now there are some beautiful expressions for what church should be all about throughout the New Testament. And I think this is one of my favorites. Knit together in love. Uh, the other night, Janessa was asking me at the dinner table, uh, she looked at my, the shirt, the t-shirt that I had on, and she said, Daddy, how did they knit your shirt? Now, I'm just wearing a plain cotton T-shirt. And she was looking intensely at the fabric, trying to work out how they knit it together, as though some poor soul had knitting needles and a million yarns of cotton and just painstakingly weaving all my fabric together. Right, but that is what God has done with this church. Gathering together an unlikely group of people from all sorts of backgrounds and weaving their hearts together in love. And through gospel ministry to help them reach assurance of faith, mature understanding, and knowledge of Jesus. Now, all of that we've covered so far in the past six weeks shows us that uh, shows us what the Christian and the church should be like. But you see, these things don't happen in isolation, right? We uh, Christians and the church are not islands in a vast untouched ocean. Right? Just doing our Christian thing, untouched by the world. Christians. And the church exists in a fallen and broken world full of sinners who need to hear the life-giving, life-transforming, and inexhaustibly good news of Jesus. And that is where we turn to today, meeting the world. So uh, just prior to our few verses, Paul asked for prayer in uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, specifically that he would have opportunities to preach the gospel and that his preaching would be clear. Now if the Apostle Paul was requesting for prayer on opportunities to preach and for clarity to preach, how much more do we need that as well? In our passage, verses four and, uh, 5 and 6, Paul turns his attention to us. Uh, not so much to call us to evangelise, but to give an encouragement about our attitude and our posture as we engage with the world around us. All right? So if you want to boil these two verses down, I think you could say actions and words matter as we engage the world and how we meet with the world. Both our actions and our words together need to work in harmony as we seek to bring the gospel to our world. As most of you probably know by now, Ben and I love movies. But imagine for a moment watching a movie and having no sound. Just watching a movie in complete silence. You might get the gist of it, but you, you might not have no idea what it's all about. Or reverse that, watching, well, not really watching a movie, hearing the movie, the sound, but having no visuals. Again, you, you might get the basic idea of the movie, but a lot of it would be lost on you. And maybe some of the most spectacular scenes would totally lose their impact. Now Paul says here that the life of a Christian needs to be godly and needs to reflect the wisdom and holiness of God but living a good life alone is not enough to properly engage our world. Lifestyle evangelism. Have you heard of that? Where you live a good enough life and people will be attracted to come to church and want to know Jesus. That does not exist. Our words need to back up our lives. What we say and how we say it. So Paul wants us to encourage these, wants to encourage these Christians and us to meet the world with our lives and with our words together. Actions and words matter together. Let's turn to our first part of our passage in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Now, the first word there, walk. That's a a word often used throughout the book in Colossians. In Colossians 1.10, he tells the Colossians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In 2.6, he says that we are to, as we have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. In 3 7, he warns against, uh, negatively, he warns against walking in our old ways, bef- the, the ways that we had before receiving Christ. So, walking here is a, a metaphor in this letter for our conduct, our behavior. Your way of life, in verses 5 and 6, it is the main, uh, and in, in verses 5 and 6, walking is the main imperative, the main command that Paul stresses. Wisdom here is a, another word for, that appears a lot throughout the book of Colossians. In this letter, wisdom has to do with knowing God's plans as they are revealed in Jesus Christ. Wisdom is to know and understand how God acts in the gospel. And so when Paul says, walk in wisdom, he's saying, live in a way that is in harmony with the gospel. Live like you know and believe in Jesus. Now, the special emphasis in four five is that Christians are to do this toward outsiders, towards those outside of the church, those outside the gospel, to non-Christians, to non-believers. Our lives are on display to a world that desperately needs the gospel. So following these words in verse 5, Paul says, making the best use of the time. Now, notice that he doesn't say make the best use of your time but he says make the best use of the time the time the time here is a reference to the last days that we are living in the time between jesus resurrection and ascension and his second coming live wisely before outsiders in the light of the second coming right the impending arrival of jesus should radically change and shape how you live and what you live for. Uh, Here's a parenting example. Uh, Steph tells me of a mum that she knows at school whose daughter has almost every spare moment of her life filled with some after-school activity. Gym, soccer, dance, tutoring, music, a whole bunch of stuff. Every single hour of her, her daughter's life is filled with something trying to provide for her child every opportunity that she could, saying yes to as many things as she could handle. In some ways, that's what our world is like, living to make the most of every second and opportunity for ourselves. Now, contrast this to some Christian parents I heard recently who faced a very similar decision. What after-school activities did they want their children involved in? Now, what did these Christian parents do? They put the gospel first, and that meant saying a no. That meant saying no to a lot of good activities, in order to provide for their children time to read their Bibles and reflect. Right? Now that means sacrificing some good things, but sacrificing them because the gospel was central to their lives. See, we can fill our time and the time of our children with good things and sometimes frittering things, but what would you end up sacrificing in order to do that? So maybe here, parents and future parents, have a think about how much you've put on your children's plate. Have a think about what we can do and what we might need to sacrifice because we know that Jesus is coming back soon. How do you live? You make the best use of the time. Now, the verb there, making the best use of, literally means to buy out. Like how Singaporeans recently cleared the shelves of food in a silly panic over the coronavirus, fears and concerns propelled them to empty the shelves of their local supermarkets. Not that we need to be afraid of the second coming, but the imminence of his return should propel us to buy out our time, to leave none of it on the shelf. We've all been given a set amount of time each day. Some of it is taken up with the basics of life, right? Cooking, eating, cleaning yourself, sleeping. 24 hours a day, 1,440 minutes, 86,400 seconds. Now, minus all the basics of life, you will have a stock of time left. And you have to make choices with what to do with that time. And Paul is saying here, buy out every bit of that time and use it to live wisely to live a gospel driven life and to do so with non-christians in full view so what does this mean for us today first in in case you're wondering uh, let me just say i don't think paul is against holidays and times of rest when paul says make the best use of the time we can go a little bit overboard with that. I knew this one girl who was so convicted about this idea that she felt guilty every time she stopped to watch TV. And so she'd actually get up and say, look, I shouldn't be wasting this time. I should be reading my Bible or praying. Now, I understand that motivation, but I don't think Paul intends to lay on us a guilt trip to make us feel bad about the use of our time. But I think he would want us to think about how even on holidays and rest, we are seeking to live in a godly way. To walk in wisdom is to walk in a way that is saturated with Christ. To make the best use of the time is to live so distinctively different from non-Christians in order to show non-Christians that their lives are missing something utterly crucial. You go back to chapter 3, verse 17 uh, in Colossians, and Paul says there, and whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whether you're on holidays, whether you're gardening, you're making school lunches, you're sitting in a lecture, or you're watching Netflix, you do so in a way that is saturated with Jesus. In in this way, our lives are to be intentionally oriented towards non-Christians. So let me ask you, how many non-Christians are in your circles. How many non-Christians are you living in front of? How much time have you created for non-Christians? When was the, part, when was the last time you were actually a part of someone's conversion? Now, one challenge I think for us to take up is the challenge to make the best use of the time we have now by building and investing in friendships with non-believers to hang out with them more. To be in the places where they are. Maybe join a club or a social activity in order to meet new people. Invite people into your space. So you're watching a show on Netflix, watch it with some non-Christian friends and have a chat about it afterwards. Right, Steph has recently been getting into pot plants, making our house more green on the inside. I have been given very clear instructions, do not touch. <laughs> right. But this new hobby of hers has allowed her to be able to meet and have conversations with our non-Christian neighbour across the road. See, in all of this, we're prayerfully asking God to help us shine the light of Christ through our lives to them. But our lives by themselves, as I said before, that it's not enough alone to win people to Christ. right? No one's going to bow down before Jesus Because you have a fantastic pot plant collection in your house. You need to speak and say the right things as well. So, in 4 verse 6, Paul says, read with me, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, there's two parts to this, so let's take a look at them in turn. First, let your speech always be gracious. Now, to speak graciously, is to speak in a way that is pleasant, kind, courteous, right? It shouldn't be filled with cursing, roughness, swearing, or cussing. But the phrase, let your speech always be gracious, is literally, let your speech always in grace. So it's not just the manner of your speaking, but also the content of your words. See, for your words to always be in grace, things I think means you should, they should always be grace-centered. The gospel of grace should never be far from your lips. Evangelist John Chapman used to spend 20 minutes of his day reading through the newspaper, usually in the morning, and having a look at the major headlines. Not just to find out what was going on in the world, but he spent time working out how he might spin each story he read back to the gospel. So, that when he met non Christians and chatted to them about what was happening in the world, he had already prepared a few verbal paths back to Jesus. Now, that's, I think, what it means for our words to be grace centered, that Jesus is never far from our lips. Now, to work out how much you should do this, Paul gives another metaphor for our words they are to be seasoned with salt. You need to be salty. Now, this metaphor needs a bit of explaining because if you're older than 40, salty means your language is full of profanity, right? Jane is so salty, I can't stand being around so much swearing. But if you're under 40, being salty means that you're usually upset or angry or bitter over something really small. Right? Doug is a little salty that I got the last piece of cake that he wanted, right? Paul means something very different about, uh, to both of those, right? Uh, though it can be a little bit tricky to work out what exactly the metaphor means. Now, there's an obvious parallel to Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew where he says that you are the salt of the earth, but commentators aren't very unified on what this means either. Uh, So one commentary says saltiness means our words must not be dull or insipid, but should be interesting and judiciously chosen. Another one says that our speech should be witty, amusing, clever or humorous which is not great if you're not very funny. John Calvin, no less, says God requires suavity of speech. Suave, like your James Bond or something. And the other issue is that salt has many different symbolic uses in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 23, salting the earth made the land infertile. In Judges 9, 45, salt is used as a symbol of desolation in leviticus two thirteen, the grain offerings were to be seasoned with salt as a symbol of the eternal covenant with god so what does this mean well, i think the easiest way to work it out to work out what seasoned with salt means here is to just look at the context all right so look again at verse six let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person you see that so that there in the middle It helps us work out what all this means speech which is seasoned with salt helps you to know how to answer each person see when you're talking to non-christians there is a way of speaking which is attractive and leaving them wanting more i like to think about cooking and seasoning and salt properly seasoned food is delicious and leaves you wanting more right under seasoned food or bland food, it's a turn-off. And too much salt feels like a punch in the face. So with speaking, so with speaking. If people know that we are Christians, but we hardly say anything about Jesus, well, they're not going to come to us wanting to know what we think and, and who Jesus is. On the other end, if every single conversation ends with us calling on people to turn and repent... Well, that's a turn off, too much salt. The way we answer people should be attractive. And the way we speak should attract people who want to know our thoughts. Now, that might sound a a bit daunting and and perhaps a little bit out of reach. But let me give you some encouragement, especially for the younger Christians here or for shy Christians. This is actually something you can grow in, something you can work on and, and be better at. So you might look at, for instance, Ben, and you think, wow, I could never answer questions like he could. But Ben didn't always have that gift. Right? He had to work on it. He had to read good books. He had to listen to good sermons, and he had to practice with non-Christians and others, and he had to make mistakes and say the wrong things and learn from them. And over time, he got better. Now, I don't mean to puff him up, as an exa- but as an example and encouragement to us all, Gracious, salty speech is something you can grow in and work on and get better at. So listen in as mature Christians and are engaging with others. Have a listen to how they're speaking and answering and actually just poke their brain about it. Ask them, pick their brain and ask them, why did you say what you said? Learn from them. You know, there are some good resources out there that you could tap into to learn how to better engage with non-Christians. So there's a great book by Rico Tice called Honest Evangelism, a fantastic, quite often humorous book on why we find evangelism difficult. Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman, a fantastic book showing you how to answer questions with other questions. He traces all the times that Jesus does that in the Gospels and and gives you a model and example of evangelism and engaging with non-Christians in a very helpful way. 21st century living, first century wisdom produced by uh, Sydney Missionary Bible College. Some great ways to think through and tackle some difficult topics with what the Bible actually says in helpful, nicely seasoned, salty ways. Some great resources there to equip you with your salty speech. But remember, the goal of gracious, salty speech is to attract and answer the non-Christians around us. Let me give one final small exhortation. If we are to grow in gracious, salty speech, then I think we also need to be careful about what we post online and in social media. Part of gracious, salty speech is caring about the truth. And so Christians should not be posting up conspiracy theories or fake news. The danger is if we're known for posting up these things online, how will people believe you when it comes to something of eternal truth and significance, like the resurrection of Jesus? If people can't take you seriously there, how are they going to take seriously the message that we have? Paul says here in these two short verses that our actions and words matter together. We are to act wisely and speak graciously towards outsiders. And we are to do that so that we might be able to give answers for our faith. Our actions and our words matter because the two together are lived before and heard by our non-believing world. And when the two are working together in harmony, they are our best testimony, especially to our increasingly suspicious world. I shared this story over the summer, but I'll share it again. Over lunch today, if you decide to head down to Hawk and drive for lunch, uh, you'll notice there a a place, a Thai restaurant by the name of Thai Nakon Lana. It's owned by a guy named Patrick. Now, a few years ago, Queensland Theological College students and staff would lunch there almost every day, because it's cheap and it's delicious. Every day, for a few months, Patrick, the owner, noticed this group of students and lecturers laughing, smiling, and enjoying each other's company. And that piqued his curiosity. And so one day, as they were finishing their lunch and paying for their meals, he asked them, Why are you guys always so happy? I want what you want. And eventually, one of them gave them a Bible. The students followed him up. And I heard recently that he became a Christian. He was baptized and is now attending a church on the south side. See, the life and speech of Christians was attractive for a non-Christian who wanted to find out more. Actions and words matter to our testimony. And through our testimony and by grace, we might win some to Jesus. See, over the past seven weeks, we've explored seven truths, seven truths that we must keep digging into, that we're saved by God, that by, we trust Him alone for our salvation, that this necessarily leads to godly living, right? that we are gathered together as a church together in this, that we, pray, we have the privilege of prayer, And today we're being reminded again as we engage with the world of our actions and us and our and our words. Now these seven things may at first seem like basic, basic things, but hopefully you'll see that uh, I've seen as well that these basic foundational things contain deep truths for us to continuously swim in. Remember, we never move on from these gospel truths. We only ever we never graduate to other truths. We only move into a deeper and more profound understanding of them. In the life of the disciple, and that is the life of the disciple. We are diggers. We dig deep into gospel truths. Our discipleship is the bread and butter, or for us Asians, maybe the meat and rice of our lives. Uh, being a disciple and making disciples is, of, of others is a core value of our church and part of our church's vision. And the pattern of making the disciples is the same. Help them understand and go deeper into the gospel. Help them live out gospel-shaped lives. Help each other love the Bible, love the church, pray for each other, and encourage each other as we engage with the world together. Let's keep doing that, and let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've called us into your church and into your kingdom. And we pray that our lives would reflect your goodness and, and, and kindness to us and that our words would be filled with such grace and that Jesus would be so close on our lips that people would be attracted by our speech and that they would want to know more as we engage with them. Father, help us to grow in this. Help us to be better at this. Forgive us for the times when we've been silent. We confess the times when we've been more afraid of what other people think of us than our fear of you. We confess those times that we have not spoken graciously uh, towards outsiders. So we pray that you'll be at work in us. We pray that you'll be at work in us for your glory and our joy and the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.